So thank you, Amber. And yes, use those, those relational reach zone sheets are an opportunity for you to just be praying for those in your life who are important to you. Or people that you're like, Jesus, would you do something in their life? Would you work in their life? Would you, would you uh, do something? And all we're asking right now is just pray. Like, write their names down and pray. And then we're just going to see what God does um, as we begin to pray for those in our spheres of influence. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Nate. I'm the lead pastor of the Front Church. Uh, maybe you're new. Uh, maybe you don't consider yourself particularly religious. Maybe you're from another tradition. We're creating the front for you because we're inviting as many people as possible to experience Jesus' story. And this morning we're kicking off a new series. And if you are brand new, like to the Christian faith, or maybe brand new to, to our tradition, or, or just kind of journeying or exploring or kind of seeking out, like, what is this thing? You couldn't have picked a better Sunday to come or to watch online. Because this morning, we're going to kick off a five-week series on the big story of, of the Bible. Every week, we say we're inviting people to experience Jesus' story. But what is that story? What is the story that Jesus makes sense of? What is the big story? And so, man, it's a great Sunday for you to join us, and it's a great series to pop into. Now, maybe you've been a, a Christian for a while, and your struggle is, I don't know how to talk to people about what I believe. And if that's you, this is a great series to be a part of too, because we're going to try and zoom out, but also throughout this series, give you some tools, give you some handles as you have um, conversations with the people in your life about what you believe or about the story of Jesus. And so I hope that you find this incredibly helpful. Every year, we try and pick a moment to zoom out as a church and look at the big story of the Bible. Last year, we did a series called How Not to Read the Bible, which was a ton of fun. Is the Bible anti-women? Is the Bible anti-science? Um, what do we do with these strange laws or rules or about pig skin or about pork? Or I mean, we, we, we did a lot of that stuff and also how it fits into the big story last year. It's a great resource. Uh, but um, this year, we're going to jump into a, a series called The Big Story, and it's um, inspired by this guy named James Chong. James Chong wrote a book called True Story, A Christianity Worth Believing In. This is a good resource. You don't have to have to read it. If you want to kind of dig a little more in the series, it'd be a great little tool to pick up. But James Chung also developed this um, tool to help people share their faith with their friends and share their faith story. And he calls it the big story. And so I have, I have two hopes for this series. The first is to get a better grasp of the big story. Forgive me, I'm setting some timers here so that you guys won't be here forever. Um, I figure you want that as much as me, right? So, uh, but um, um, my hope for this story is, is this series is twofold. Uh, one is to have a better grasp of the big story of the scripture, and the second is to have a tool that, at the very least, gives you handles for faith conversations, but maybe even more is something that you can use. Um, uh, you can draw on a napkin, that sort of thing. And so a short-sighted version 
or a short-sighted understanding of the big story will lead to a short-sighted view of our mission in the world. And so I have a little starter kit here, um, and a lot, and maybe maybe what I'm about to show or write was the way that you were introduced to Christian faith for the first time. This is a helpful tool, but a lot of people are introduced to the Christian faith or to the story of the Christian faith with this, what they call the bridge. And the bridge uses Romans 6.23 as a way to share the story of Jesus, which is a story about, um, which, which talks about us and God and there being a separation between us. And so Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, and isn't my handwriting impeccable, you guys? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And how there's a, there's a, there's a separation between us and God, but what Jesus came to do is Jesus came to bridge the separation. And though on our own, we've fallen short We're, because of sin that's going to lead to death. Because of Jesus, he offers us a free gift of eternal life. He is the bridge across the great divide. And they call this the bridge. The bridge is a fine way to explain the biblical story, but it has some shortfalls. One is it's, it's really kind of based on a decision. It's kind of based on individ- your kind of a- individual in the middle of the story. And it's really kind of main concern, the way it presents the story of the Bible, is about our afterlife. And so none of these things are necessarily wrong, but what I want to do is explore a way of explaining the big story that incorporates these things but moves us along. So a way to tell the story of the Bible that's not just about decision, but it's about transformation. A way that tells a big story that's not just individual-focused, but tells us about our role in our community. A way to tell the story that's not just about our afterlife, but about our mission life here and now. And so this is fine, but I think there's a better approach. Now, there's this guy, maybe you've heard of him, maybe you haven't. It's fine if you haven't. His name's D.L. Moody. And one time a lady came up to D.L. Moody and she said, I don't like your evangelism methods. And evangelism is a, is, is a word that we use in the church to describe sharing the gospel with someone. So she says, I don't like your evangelism methods. He's like, okay, well, tell me about yours. And she said, I don't have any. And he said, I like mine better than yours. And so if this is what you got, this is good, okay? So don't hear me dissing this. But I think that there, I think a short-sighted view of the story creates a short-sighted view of our mission, and a bigger view of the story will create a more complete view of our mission. And so we're going to use James Chong and the Bible to get there. So you guys ready? Let's go. And this is a real question. Sometimes I ask uh, rhetorical questions, but this is actually real. 
So I want you to shout out some answers to me. Tell me about the world. What do you see on the news? Conflict. Destruction. Division. Name some other stuff. Advertising. Immorality. Anger. Shootings. I mean, it's terrible to hear about the chief's parade. Jeez Louise. Here we go again. Brokenness, right? I'm seeing this billboard uh, along the interstate right now that says, and this one gets me because I'm about to have teenage girls. Uh, 57% of teenage girls feel persistently sad or hopeless. There's all sorts of things in our world that are broken. What's interesting about this, though, is our internal response to the brokenness. Um, in Tim Keller's book, Reason for God, really, if, if your friends are like, if you're like, wow, my friend is really curious. My friend is asking a lot of questions. My friend is a reader. This is a good book to recommend to them. But what's interesting is our, our internal feelings about a broken world because nature is violent, naturally. Let me, let me explain here. In Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, he has this little section. I'm going to read it. Is that okay? Scott, you can follow me with the slides as I read it from the book. Consider the observations of writer Annie Dillard Diller lived for a year by a creek in the mountains of Virginia, expecting to be inspired and refreshed by the closeness of nature. Instead, she came to realize that nature was completely ruled by one central principle, violence by the strong against the weak. There's not a person in the world, Dillard says, that behaves as badly as praying mantises. But wait, you say, there is no right or wrong in nature. Right or wrong is a human concept. Precisely, we are moral creatures in an immoral world. Or consider the alternative. It is only human feeling that is freakishly amiss. All right, then. It is our emotions that are amiss. We are freaks and the world is fine. Let us all go and have lobotomies to restore us to natural state. We can leave, lobotomize, go back to the creek and live on its banks untroubled as any muskrat or reed. You first. She's saying, well, I'll just let Keller explain if you guys are like, what? Annie Dillard saw that all nature is based on violence. Yet we inescapably believe it's wrong for stronger human individual groups or individuals or groups to kill weaker ones. If violence is totally natural, why would it be wrong for strong humans to trample weak ones? There is no basis for moral obligation unless we argue that nature is in some part unnatural. We can't know that nature is broken in some way unless there is some supernatural standard of normalcy apart from nature by which we can judge right and wrong. That means there would have to be a heaven or God or some kind of divine order outside of nature in order to make that judgment. There is only one way out of this conundrum. We can pick up the biblical account of things and see if it explains our moral sense any better than a secular view. If the world was made by a God of peace, justice, and love, 
then that is why we know that violence, oppression, and hate are wrong. If the world is fallen, broken, and needs to be redeemed, that explains the violence and disorder we see. If you believe human rights are a reality, then it makes much more sense that God exists than that he does not. You guys tracking with Keller's line of argument here? He's saying we can't really get our morality from nature. It doesn't make sense because nature is violent. It's the strong over the weak. And so where does this sense of right and wrong, where does this feeling that things are broken, that it is wrong for two teenagers to get in a fight and shoot up a parade and a DJ that's 45 years old to die who has two kids and a husband at home, why we can say that's wrong. It's interesting that we feel that. C.S. Lewis would say that, um, uh, and he says, if you hunger, you feel hungry, that points to something out in the world that will satisfy that feeling. Food. Something exists to satisfy the feeling. If you're thirsty, and I'm thirsty right now, and I forgot to bring my water up, but if you're thirsty, and that points to a, something out there in the world that can satisfy your thirst, which is a drink. So if I feel upset or broken or, or, or distressed about the state of the world, that feeling, I think, points to reality that either a better world once existed or a better world will one day exist. And in the Christian story, we believe it did. So that ache points us to something. So scriptures are going to be on the screen, but you can also turn on or open your Bibles to the very beginning. You only have to flip like two pages to Genesis chapter 1. And that's where we're going to go this morning. And we're talking about a, the big story. It's important for us to begin at the beginning. So let's go. All right. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then I have some shortcuts here for you on the next slide, which is instead of reading all these verses, I just want to point out a few things. Okay, day one, it says God creates light, and it was good. Day two, there's an expanse between water and the sky. He never says it's good in day two. Isn't that interesting? I don't know. Maybe this expanse isn't good. I was like, I had to double check that. Like, it doesn't say good on day two. It doesn't say it. Go look yourself. Day three, though, dry land, oceans, it was good. Uh, plants, veg vegetables, fruit trees, vegetables, uh, fruit trees, it was good. Day four, sun, moon, stars, it was good. Day five, sea creatures, birds, it was good. Day six, part one, Animals on the ground, it was good. Another interesting thing, um, four fills one, five fills two, six fills three. Look it up for a second. Call me again. Four fills one, five fills two, six fills three. Um, is the Bible anti-science? We did a whole message on that a year ago. I'm going to put it up on a resources page. You can find the resource page right here, thefrontchurch.com slash thebigstory. You can listen to that specific message. Is the Bible anti-science? 
where we talk about how to responsibly read the beginning of the biblical account and the Genesis account. And we talk about how there's actually a lot of room for some different scientific perspectives. And Scripture allows that. And we explain that. We're trying to take Scripture seriously here at the front. But I find it, I find it fascinating that 4 fills 1, 5 fills 2, 6 fills 3. But then let's keep going. Okay. Day 6, part 2. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female both bear his image. Together, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I'll give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit and seed in it. They'll be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move around the ground, everything that has breath and life in it, I give green, every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he was made and it was very good. Hey, very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. God created a good, wonderful world. And in the beginning, everything was right. So we're going to draw our two people right here in the middle. It's Find me an art museum, y'all. Close, connected, together. In the beginning, everything right with each other. Now, there's another um, creation story, kind of contemporary, with the um, with our biblical creation story account um, that that was circulating in Babylon. And it was called the Enuma Elish. Okay, this is a super nerd moment, but stick with me for a second. The Enuma Elish was a a creation story that another culture kind of held to be true. And in that story, there was a god named Marduk, who was a god of justice and order and light. And he had an enemy, Tiamat, who was a serpent goddess of chaos and darkness. And so Marduk kills Tiamat. Yeah. He takes her down, and then you know what he does? He uses Tiamat's corpse to create the world. And this account of creation contemporary with the biblical account, this other account, the world is created out of violence, a violent act. It's, it's a cosmic cleanup. It's a creation of the universe that's more improvised than designed. But in the biblical creation account, this is different from other creation stories of its day. Because in this account, the universe was thought through and created not on accident, not a product of violence, but by design. I meant to bring up my nifty fossil watch, but it's in the back in a bag. So we're going to talk about my Apple watch for a minute. This is a good watch. What makes this watch a good watch? Does it help the Minnesota Timberwolves play incredible basketball this season? No. 
Does it help Cam not honk his horn when people are cutting him off? If you know, you know. Can it help me be a better driver? No, this is a good watch because it's good at keeping time. Good means it's, it's fulfilling its intended purpose. And so when God calls the world good, he's talking about things functioning as he intended them to function. They fulfill their intended purpose. And so the three things we need to talk about this morning are what are God's purposes for the world, for each other, and for people in him. And so thing one is God's design for the world is creation is meant to be a blessing to humans, and humans are meant to be a blessing to creation. You could say God himself was the first environmentalist. Insert your joke there if you want. Maybe that makes you uncomfortable. Bible, not me, it's the Bible. But um, Genesis 2.15 says this. It says, um, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And then we already read Genesis 1, 28 and 29, which God talks about giving them every seed-bearing plant, the whole earth, and every tree, and all the fruit and seed in it. It's all yours for food, the beasts of the earth, the birds, and the, all the creatures of the sky, everything that has breath and life in them. And it was so. People and creation were meant to be a mutual blessing to one another. We take care of creation. Creation takes care of us. This is God's good design for it. What's God's design for uh, one another. Well, God's design for each other is we were designed to bless each other, to be close to one another. Look at this. Genesis 2.18. It's going to make a lot of you uncomfortable for a minute, but hang with me. Probably half the room uncomfortable at this point. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Uh, in our culture, Helper is a word that feels second class. Okay? But it didn't feel or intend that in the biblical story. In fact, this word shows up a lot in our Old Testament. And it, it means to save with strength. Oh, that. I will make someone who will save him with strength. Because the Lord knows he's going to need it sometimes. Right? To save with strength. Now, most of the time, when the word helper shows up in our Old Testament, it's not in reference to a woman. It's in reference to God himself. And God's rescuing activity for his people. To save with strength. And so recognize that the English reads a little funny. Right? We're like, helper? What are you saying? But the reality is, this is an incredible statement. Here. But not only were, was creation designed to take care of us, and we were designed to take care of a creation, we are designed to take care of one another. And this mutual blessing, this mutual relationship with one another, that's God's good design for, one, for our relationship with one another. And then God's good design for people in Him is that God's design for people and God is to be with us and us with God. Genesis 1.31 says, God saw all that he made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. God saves his highest praise, the pinnacle of creation for us, for humans. And it's really cool because if we keep reading and we're going to go there next week, 
and really dig into this. But even after humans' disobedience, even after humans screw things up and decide, I don't want to work in alignment and harmony with the way that God has designed things. I want to do my own thing. Even after that, you know what happens? Genesis 3 verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? What happens is God goes looking. God, God goes looking for them because he wants to be with them. God's design for the world is, is God's design for us is to be in relationship with him and him with us. Because he loves us. And all of this was, sorry, I sat down too soon, designed for good. Marker on my middle finger, I won't show it to you. What happened? What happened? Creation's supposed to bless us. We're supposed to bless it. We're supposed to be in a relationship, a mutual blessing with one another, male and female together. We're supposed to be in a relationship with God, where, um, a relationship where, 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 where we're in communion with him and him with us. And it's a mutual relationship. It's a, a relationship of mutual blessing. Of course we're blessed by God, but do you know God loves us and he's blessed by us? What happens? I'm going to dive more into that next week. But we know this isn't the reality. We know the reality is that world with a squiggly line around it. But I want to focus for the remainder of our time on what God does when things go wrong. Uh, I love this about God. I'm so thankful God works this way because I don't know about you, but I'm pretty good at messing some stuff up. I'm pretty good at it. Sometimes too good. Um, you guys watch The Chosen? There's a moment in The Chosen, uh, season two, and I, I, haven't, I haven't seen all the episodes. Don't judge me, or maybe judge me, I don't know. But season two, where... Um, where Mary goes back to her old life. Now, this isn't in the Bible, but this is a little bit of imagination here. Where Mary goes back to her old life, and then the disciples go and they find her. And like, Mary, you got to come back. And she's like, I can't face him. I can't face him. And uh, she, she comes, but, but they convince her to, to come back. And, um, and he's like, did you think that after you start out following me, you're just going to, like, never fail again? And he, he embraces her, but he, he sent people to look after her. Now, that's just a story. That's, that's a bit of imagination. But here in the Bible story, we have a God who, when we go opposite of him, he doesn't say, well, see you later. But God goes looking. He seeks us out. Sometimes we think it's the opposite. Sometimes we think that we're the ones looking for God. And, and yeah, yeah, of course, there's some, some truth in that. But the reality is, even before you had the thought of looking for God, God began looking for you. God is a God who pursues you, who lovingly pursues you. Uh, I heard, uh, I, I've seen this meme, and I feel like I shared it with you guys recently, but it just keeps coming back to me. And that's, religion says, I messed up, 
dad's going to kill me. But the gospel is, I messed up. I need to call dad. Because God is a God who goes looking. And this is the core of the gospel story. It's not a God who abandons his creation or a God who's like a clockmaker and just kind of sets everything right and then just leaves it. But it's the God who is committed to not just he created this thing this way, but he's committed to seeing, to restore it to this again one day. He's the God who goes looking. He's the God who, in your most shameful and embarrassing moments and failures, you don't have to run. You don't even have to prove anything to him. You can just turn to him and say, man, I messed up. I love the story of the two sons in the Bible. Jesus tells this story because he wants us to understand this God, okay? He says, the guy has two sons. This is Luke 15, if, if, if you want to read it on your own someday. A guy has two sons. And one of the sons says, Dad, I wish you were dead so I can have my inheritance. Can you give it to me now? And his dad gives the younger son his inheritance. And the older son never leaves his dad always faithful, always showing up, always doing the work that's required to be done, while the younger son goes off and blows all his dad's money on wild living, what Jesus says in this story. And then the younger son just has, he knows failure like maybe some of you guys know failure. You've been there in the pit with the pigs for him. He never saw his life going that way, but there he is. And he has this moment where he's like, I know what I should do. I should go back to my dad's house and I'll just tell him, like, Dad, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And at least the life of a servant in my dad's house is better than the life I'm living right now. So he starts to go back. Um, probably kind of slow and embarrassed and filled with shame. And he gets out and you know what Jesus says about his dad in the story? He says his dad is And when his dad sees him, his dad does the most undignified thing that any man in the Jewish first century could ever do. He takes off running. And he runs to his son. And his son gets about a quarter of the way through his rehearsed apology. Dad, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me. He doesn't even get the words out. And his dad says, kill the fattened calf, throw a party. My son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And everyone goes wild because that's the type of God we have. But I don't want you to miss this. Jesus told that story because a lot of religious people were upset with him because of who he's keeping company with. Because Jesus is always upsetting the religious people of his day because he keeps insisting that those that they deem far from God are not actually far from God. And so the religious people and the people that they don't like are hearing this story at the same time. And I imagine that the people that the religious people don't like are like, yeah, you know, like, you're feeling like, wow, God does love me. God is looking out for me. God is pursuing me. God has gone looking for me. But then Jesus keeps telling the story. And he says, the older brother hears. And the older brother gets upset with his dad. He doesn't like how his dad's working. Dad, I've always shown up. I've done all the rules. I've done all the checklists. I've done everything you asked me to do, and yet you don't throw me a party, and you're throwing this son a party. And his father is asking, 
the son who did all the things, who's had a pretty good life, who hasn't experienced a lot of failure, who, 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 who honestly sees himself as better than his younger brother. He sees himself as better than other people. The father is asking him to join the same party. And Jesus actually doesn't tell us if he goes or not. Because while some of you might be able to identify with the younger brother, the failure and the eating with the pigs, some of you might be able to identify with the older brother. But Jesus is here to tell you, this is how God works. Will you be a part of this story? Because this is the story you're being invited into. The story that welcomes those. And Jesus is inviting the religious people of his day to see their own failure and their own sin struggle and seeing themselves as superior and morally superior and having done all the right things. And Jesus is inviting them to check the attitudes of their hearts. God is a God who goes looking for the younger son and the older son. And next week, we're going to be talking some about living in our damaged and broken world. And we're going to continue our series. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the reminder of who you are. The God who came looking for us. Who while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. And Apostle Paul says that, um, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we previously walked. You made us alive with Jesus even when we were walking in sin and death and brokenness and failure. You are the God who goes looking. You are the God who works. You are the God who has pursued us and loved us and continues to love and pursue us and invite us in a relationship with yourself. You made us for you, and when things went wrong, you are committed to righting them. And so would we let your grace mark us? Would we remember who you are? And would you help us as we continue in this series to get a view of the big story and how you're at work, and the work you're calling us to as your people. In your name, amen.